But with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's even more obvious that the pardon process has failed, it's been excessively bureaucratic, and it hasn't delivered the results that any right-thinking person would want us to have delivered. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Law in Canada. I'm Russell Bennett, a cannabis lawyer in Toronto. With me today is three-time winner, Liberal Member of Parliament, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith of the Beaches East York Riding, otherwise known as Nate. Nate and I talk about many things, including how he grew as a politician from losing a city council election as a university student to winning a grassroots campaign for the Liberal Party for the first time in 2014, and how Nate's views on criminal justice reform have shaped the government's policy and the country regarding cannabis and the decriminalization of all illicit drugs. As the co-chair of the All-Party Cannabis Caucus, Nate has a key role to play in improving the cannabis laws in Canada, and we discuss many elements of those changes. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Hi there. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the podcast. Um, yeah, thanks for having Nathaniel, me. Do you, do you prefer Nate, Nathaniel? How do you prefer to be called? I have no real preference so long as it's not Nat or Nathan. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, so, Nate, I'll, I'll call you Nate because your, uh, your, your website is, is uh, Vote Nate. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, in the election. Although now, post-election, we'll go back to being B-E-Y Nate, which is Beaches East York Nate. So, yeah. So, uh-huh. I, I go by Nate often in politics. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, Nate, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for making time to, uh, to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Um, let's, uh, let's start out with, you know, uh, you, you just won this election. So congratulations on your, on your win. Thank, thanks very much. Uh, how, how does it feel now? You're, you're a veteran now. You've been, you've been at this in the house for a while. How does it feel to win this election versus your very first one? Very different in a number of different ways. In the first election, we hustled from when there was snow on the ground all the way through the spring, all the way through the summer, all the way into the fall and October. And we were the underdog. We didn't know what was going to happen. There were obviously national dynamics at play. People didn't know who I was. And so there was, you know, there may be people I went to high school with or people I grew up with in the area knew who I was. But overwhelmingly, People, I didn't have a track record in politics to run on and for people to look at and for me to point to. And I was very much learning the ropes when I was first elected. And so there was a lot of sort of jubilation and we didn't know that it was necessarily going to happen. So it, in some ways it was unexpected. And so fast forward to the 2019 election and we then had a bit of a track record to run on. And in this past election, similarly, a track record, but also we know what we need to do. We The opposition campaigns in this election, at least locally, weren't as serious as we've seen in the past uh, in terms of their level of organization and the amount of money they were spending and effort they were putting in. And so it, it was a bit of an odd election, a tough national election, certainly this past time. But I'm I'm very much of the view that, okay, great, election happened short celebration worthwhile, but really let's get back to work. And, and I'm, I, I really just, I, I consider the election a hiccup along the way to getting more work done. So that's my focus after this, this election more than anything. And, and so what is that work that you're doing now? What can you, can you give me a, the laundry list, the to-do list of what you're up against? 
I've got a long list. Yeah. So there are commitments we've made in the platform that I want to make sure we realize in, in a meaningful way on climate action, on a national school food policy, uh, promises around a comprehensive drug policy and drug strategy, which I think we'll speak about more. And mm-hmm. also animal rights commitments that we made in the platform, commitments around affordable housing that we made in the platform, commitments around poverty reduction. I've co-chaired an anti-poverty caucus for the last number of years since Art Eagleton retired, who was the senator who created it. And the Canada disability benefit that we've promised, we have to realize that there's going to be a lot of work in realizing that EI reform, there's going to be a lot of work too. So yeah, I've got a long list to, to tackle criminal justice reform and making sure that C-22 comes back as, as part of the drug policy work. Obviously, I help co-chair a cannabis caucus as well, and there is a review that will be underway shortly. So that work will loom large, I think, in the short term. Uh, so there's, yeah, I've got a lot on my list, and, and some much of the early work will be about translating promises that we've made into real policies on the ground and there's a lot of implementation work and advocacy around adequate and important implementation and the right way of doing things the a lot of advocacy otherwise and i I wouldn't say this normally normally i'm not just out of an election where there are lots of promises to implement and so much of the advocacy along the way in between elections is about adding new issues to the agenda but but in the immediate aftermath of an election much of it's going to be about revisiting unfinished business from the last parliament and implementing promises we made most recently in our election platform. It's a long list. My gosh. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot to do. How, so can, maybe you can give me just for our listeners benefit, just a like, how, so you've got this list, say of your top 10 things, drug policy, animal rights, affordable housing, you know, you've got all these things to accomplish. Uh, is it merely just voting, debating and voting in the House of Commons, is this how, this how a lot of the work gets done on, on new legislation or how, uh, I guess for each, each topic, there's a different strategy on how to execute. Is that, uh, maybe you could explain There is, me. because not but, every strategy, not every policy action that you're looking for is a legislative change. And I would say even with respect to legislative changes, debates in the House of Commons don't move the needle as much as advocacy directly with policy advisors, with ministers, with and then building coalitions in your caucus and outside of your caucus, right? So, oh, really? You know, we okay, saw so, animal rights. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So, just well, I was going to say, I mean, we saw rights, yeah. a number of animal rights commitments in the platform, and we saw that in large part measure because over twenty of my colleagues and I had convened meetings and signed on to a letter and called for those actions, right? And so it, there's a a symbiotic relationship between advocacy in parliament and by elected officials and advocacy groups. And so you, you lean on one another and you try and build up coalitions and, and, and increase public support both outside of parliament, but also increase support inside of parliament for different issues. But yeah, there's a lot of advocacy work that is less formal than giving a 20 minute speech or a 10 minute speech in the house of commons. And, and you do want to work through the house of commons and through those procedures to deliver legislative change at times. So I've seen the private members bill process 
as a really useful tool to move issues forward, including on drug policy, where I've introduced a number of bills, and one of them was adopted almost verbatim by the government most re- more recently. Um, but but also, you know, we recent we had a, a net zero accountability law recently. I'd introduced similar legislation in principle before the government had tabled their own legislation, and then in working through the government's legislation, I was able to secure some amendments as well through the committee process and through, again, engagement directly with the minister's office and and their policy advisors. So that's a lot of the work I would say is coalition building and direct advocacy with those with the authority to make to make decisions. So let's take let's dissect one issue, uh, drug policy. Okay, let's let's go down the road on that a bit. You said you, you introduced a number of bills into the House. Again, for the benefit of our listeners, what's the difference between a private member's bill and a, a you know a House of Commons bill? What's the um, the practical difference, and how how does each one play out? Maybe you can give me an example with uh, with Murray Rankin and his private member's bill that you supported. Right. So, government legislation does move through the House of Commons in a, a not dissimilar fashion to private members' legislation through the House of Commons, but government legislation is subject to a, a calendar that the House of Commons controls and that the government functionally controls by virtue of having the most votes in the House of Commons. And so the government is able to move much more quickly on the on the priorities that it has. And so when it tables legislation, it has to move through the same stages. And there's it's not restricted in the number of days of debate that we can have around government legislation. So sometimes more days of debate are obviously required. Government legislation is typically further reaching than a private member's bill, which is normally fairly discreet and narrow cast in terms of the issue that you're trying to address in order to ensure that it has support. And, you know, I don't have the resources that the justice minister has, that the environment minister has. I don't have the bureaucracy at my disposal to put together the most comprehensive piece of legislation as far as it goes. Um, and so, and, and we, we lean on legislative drafters as individual member, members of parliament. But again, you, you can't go to them and say, I want to draft a hundred page bill in a way that the government has many legislative drafters to lean on and, and many departments to lean on. So there, there, there are clear differences in, in that regard. And government legislation necessarily moves faster because it's on its own timeline, as I say. So the government can push it forward on on its timeline. There are procedural moves that opposition parties can bring to bear to delay things, but there are also procedural moves that you can cut through that delay that the government can deploy. And so private members legislation, on the other hand, is a very arcane process. It's subject to a lottery, literally a lottery, where there are over, you know, almost 300 members of parliament who won't be in cabinet and parliamentary secretaries. And so we can introduce an unlimited number of pieces of legislation. And sometimes you'll introduce a bill just to garner, you know, media attention for a story and try to drive a narrative and increase public support and put an issue on the agenda. It, it can play that role too. But if you want to make a legislative change, then you need to win that lottery because you need to be early on enough in parliament where you will get a bill debated and voted on. And the lottery has nothing to do with whether you can introduce a bill, but it has everything to do with whether your bill will get debated and voted on. And so you get thrown into this process where you get one hour of debate, then you know the it's a, the top 30 that get all debated at, at, at the same time in order. And so you wait for the cycle to, to come back around to you. So well over a month later, two months usually, it'll come back to you for a second hour of debate. Then there's a vote. 
you hopefully pass it at second reading, and then it goes to committee for study. It comes back for that same arcane process of one hour of debate, time elapses, second hour of debate at third reading, you hopefully pass it in the House, and then it kicks over to the Senate for a similar process. And so you don't really see much private members' legislation pass, partly because it, it, it may well get defeated at second reading if it doesn't have support of the government, but even where it gets past second reading, the timeline can take so very long that unless you've won the lottery and you're within that top 30, you're going to have a very hard time seeing a bill through parliament. That sounds like an almost impossible task to get a private member's bill passed into law. So what what was Murray Rankin doing with his private member's bill and why did you support him? This is back in 2017, right? This is uh, for pardons and expungements. Is that- yeah. I mean, this is no brainer policy. If you go back to the original Young Liberals resolution that called for legalization in the first place and pointed to the injustice of criminalization and noted that to rectify that injustice, expungement, deleting records was the answer. And we, unfortunately, as a government, move forward with an incredibly bureaucratic process for pardons that was free. That's good. So I don't want to dismiss the process entirely, but it, it was very obvious on its face that if you want to delete these offenses from the record, if you want to ensure that we are rectifying an injustice, you get rid of these in a way that they can never come back because pardons can come back, future governments can reassert them. But more than that, you want to create a system where you, you don't want to put the onus on people who have been subject to these charges and, and, and records. You want to say to the bureaucracy, here are your marching orders, go and get rid of them. And We've seen jurisdictions in the United States do this very thing, so we know it's possible. And and yes, it may well be additional work for the bureaucracy. It may not always be easy. There may be you know additional charges. It's not just simple possession. Someone might have been convicted of. It might have been additional charges as, and, and convictions as well. But at the end of the day, it, we know it's possible to do. And what's the fairest route if you care about addressing the injustice of prohibition? Well, you delete the the records. The, the government was of a different view. They fundamentally came at it not from the perspective of addressing and rectifying an injustice. They came at it from the perspective of this is a policy change. So from a going on a going forward basis, we want to make sure people are not being prosecuted for possession of cannabis. But on a backward looking basis, we are going to not see this as this incredible injustice that needs to be rectified. We're instead going to see this as uh, a measure that we want to make sure people get back to their lives and that this isn't going to be an imposition in reintegration of society. So we don't want to charge or a record to hold people back in any way. And so a pardon process for them was adequate at the time. I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, I think it was obvious at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's even more obvious that the pardon process has failed. It's been excessively bureaucratic and it hasn't delivered the results that any right thinking person would want us to have delivered. You don't sound like the, the government to me. That, you're, Nate, how did you become where, where, where you're not the typical politician? You, you don't. I mean, and I, and I mean that in the best way. It's 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 a, it's amazing to hear you speak, Nate, about this specific about this issue. You're so uh, clear headed and focused and well researched. Where I mean, where did this? 
I'm, I just, I don't understand it because most people <laughs> in the government do not see what you see. How is it that you see it differently? And where did you get this idea from? I don't, I could help me out here. I don't understand. Well, I, I don't think I'm alone in the governing benches to think that expungement is a better answer. I probably have been more willing to stick my neck out than, than some to say, this is the right thing to do. I gave a speech in the house, certainly where I drew attention to the historical injustice and drew attention to the racial injustice because the government speaks a very good game, I would say around addressing systemic racism and, and that's important. And we, and we've done a lot, right? Like the diversity of appointments in the civil service, there's been funding for black entrepreneurs. There's been, uh, there's finally legislation from the government tabled to reform and reverse mandatory minimum sentences in large measure and also to restore conditional sentencing. And these are all really important initiatives. And cannabis legalization was incredibly progressive in its own right. So I, I think there are there has been lots of good, but if you care about addressing systemic racism and you care about the I don't know, evidence-based policy, I suppose, in, in criminal justice, then it's impossible not to look at the history of cannabis criminalization and see it as an injustice more broadly, but also as a racial injustice. And so uh, I, I, it, I have no good explanation for why the government didn't come around to this view when I think it's so obvious, other than they were, you know, they, they had their view that this wasn't this deep-seated injustice in the way that I see it. And this was more about get helping people get back to their lives. I, I just think that's wrong. Now, you know, as voters and elected officials are no different in some ways, I overwhelmingly support the liberal government's agenda on any number of fronts, climate action being an obvious one, but but others as well. But do I agree with everything the government does? No. Do I agree with everything that the prime minister says and does? Certainly not. And I personally think our politics is better when we embrace disagreement, but we embrace it where that disagreement is focused on ideas. And I'm not going to snipe at the prime minister for particular conduct and who he is, but if he stands up and says, we shouldn't decriminalize single game sports betting, or we shouldn't decriminalize drugs, I'm going to say, yes, we should, <laughs> you know, like, obviously we should, and here's why. And um, uh, on a personal note, just why this issue, why I'm more informed, I suppose, on this issue than some of my colleagues, uh, I have Crohn's, I have been a longtime cannabis user and I have always thought the laws were unjust and ridiculous and absurd really and I have long thought that they were applied in a disproportionately arbitrary way and I certainly as you know as a, as a white lawyer I never felt that I was at any particular risk and I know that's not the same for everyone and so I was deeply committed to getting to Parliament and fixing that. And I joke, you know, I got to Parliament and I was a criminal and I changed the law and I'm not a criminal anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I think there's, a, there's certainly a personal element to it that, that it matters a lot to me. What was, the, what was the first time you became aware of cannabis? In high school, but I became more aware of the drug policy laws in a broader way and the unfairness of it all in undergrad. And I, it was an organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I think they might've renamed themselves, but there was Leap. a- That's right. I remember Leap. Yeah, Leap. And it's a collection of law enforcement 
uh, usually retired law enforcement and prosecutors and judges, but it was uh, there was a former police officer in upstate New York who came up. I brought him up to campus at Queens University, and he spoke there. But it, it that was a huge realization just to see the advocacy from former law officials who were saying law enforcement officials who were saying we spent our whole lives fighting the war on drugs and and it it's a failed war and, and here's why and it, i think they articulated the case incredibly well and once you start doing a deeper dive i mean you see that experts any expert who has looked at this issue they there's unanimity on this that the war on drugs has failed and we need a better approach now people may differ on the perfect approach some people may point to portugal some people point to more regulatory solutions which which i increasingly favor but i would say you know there's no one who has looked at this issue in a serious way who you know whether you're noam, noam chomsky or milton friedman or anywhere in between everyone comes at this who's looked at it and says you know the war on drugs has failed and we need to fix it uh, there's a, a current organization if anyone's interested but the global commission on drug policy is an equally or, or maybe even more impressive organization when you look at the caliber of people who've been involved. But Kofi Annan used to be a part of it before he passed. And when he was UN, when he was leading the UN, he, he received a letter from hundreds of academics and experts who said, you know, the war on drugs is harming people more than drugs themselves. <laughs> and, nice. and, and he then, after that position, he then joined the global commission and, and was echoing that. Right. So I, I think, there's an obviousness to it if anyone takes the evidence seriously. You uh, you have a podcast, and on your podcast, by the way, it's a great podcast. And for anybody listening today, you should give Nate's podcast a listen. Nate, what's your what's your handle again? It's Uncommons.ca. It's yeah, it's Uncommons is the name of the podcast, and yeah, I focus on drug policy on a number of occasions. And, and criminal justice policy more broadly. I think Louise Arbour is probably who I had That's on right. last to talk drug policy. I, yeah, I, I was just going to mention that people listen to that interview. It's a fantastic interview. Louise Arbour uh, was a, a former Supreme Court justice. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So she was Supreme Court justice here in Canada. Then she went on to be a UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and she has an incredible career. She was a former international prosecutor of war crimes, and she is now part of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, which I was just referencing, and comes to the same conclusion. And it's interesting how quickly this conversation has moved because we, you know, if you look at even when I was first elected in 2015, and and you look at the history of even this short advocacy between 2015 and now, I feel like this conversation has moved, but you, you speak to Louise Arbour and, you know, when they were first getting the global commission together, their hope was just to change the conversation a little bit to highlight the stigma that was being created by criminalization and to identify the failure of criminalization. Whereas their most recent writing, they're articulating a strong defense of strict regulation. And it, the conversation, I think, internationally, and, and I would say in Canada as well, although we're not yet where we need to be, but it has moved quickly. And in part, it's because of the tragedy of the opioid crisis. And it's horrifying to think that it's taken tens of thousands of lives for policymakers to be more serious about acting, for CAMH and health officials to be raising their voices in a more serious way. But we're finally, I think, at a place where police chiefs, public health experts, 
people who have lived experience, people who have lost loved ones, people overwhelmingly involved in this issue are, are now united in what we need to do. And it's politicians that now need to listen and, and, and act. Um, let, let's take what you've just said and dovetail it into medical cannabis for a moment. Um, in, in terms of regulation, federal government regulates medical cannabis exclusively in terms of its distribution. And the provinces, they regulate cannabis for adult use. This divide, can you, are you hearing difficulties with this divide and the difficulties for people to get sort of medical grade cannabis, if you will, that's different from recreational or is it all the same? I mean, as a, as a consumer of medical cannabis yourself, is it, is it, um, uh, a necessary change to regulate medical cannabis in a different way than we're, than we're currently doing, um, maybe in the stores, for example, you know, uh, medical dispensaries. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on the medical cannabis? Uh, there are two issue? lines of feedback that I've received from people who are patient advocates. And one is just a concern about medical grade supply that the broader market and the ability to make money in that market there's a stronger incentive there. And so there's less interest in medical grade supply. And, and that is obviously a challenge if we're not maintaining a sufficient supply for those patients in need. And the second feed, piece of feedback that we hear, which is an easier thing to solve, is around excise taxes and the need to address our taxation of cannabis when you consider patient access needs. And uh, I think we have failed on the taxation side. I remember it, it's a while ago that I put this together, but I put together a comparison of other jurisdictions, largely in the U.S., that were legalizing cannabis and regulating it and laying taxes on it. And many jurisdictions had sales taxes. Some jurisdictions had excise taxes. Very few jurisdictions imposed both. And we were almost alone in the level of taxation we were looking to, to place upon cannabis. And it's a, it, it's a real challenge when you think of patient access. So that's, a, that's an obvious thing that we need to solve, hopefully in this parliament, hopefully as part of the, the five-year review, but that's, that's high on the list. In terms of the two systems and how one might cannibalize the other, I don't have a ready solution, but it, it, it'll certainly be the, on the agenda as far as our cannabis caucus is concerned. Can you, yeah, tell me a little bit about your ca cannabis ca caucus. Uh, the, who, how how was it uh, invented, and is it well, who's it serving, and what are you doing on it? Yeah, I would say it, it hasn't been as fully formed in some respects, partly because of the pandemic, where we had initially come together. I want to say in 2019 with the idea, and by we I mean Don Davies from the NDP, Scott Reed from the Conservatives, and myself from the Liberal Party and all interested in the issue for different reasons, I think. Scott Reed, for example, takes a strong libertarian view. I don't think he's ever consumed cannabis in his life, but he doesn't think it should be criminal because he believes in personal freedom. And the pandemic certainly delayed the realization of any meaningful efforts in some respects, simply because other priorities loomed large, and, and, and rightly so. And we talked a little bit of, uh, before the election about how you know we want to convene 
we did do some, I should say, we did some advocacy throughout the pandemic. Some of the producers were deeply affected uh, and, and we were hearing their concerns and trying to voice those concerns into finance. I think going forward, the idea would be to, my idea at least, I, I, I don't know that this is uh, set by any means, but I'd like to see it be a cannabis and also drug policy caucus in a larger way because I think there are meaningful conversations for us to have around psychedelics in this parliament. But I would also say around cannabis and the five-year review, we're generally agreed, the three of us, and it really is just the three of us now. There are a few others. There's uh, Senator Black. Neil Ellis, unfortunately, lost the election, but he was interested as well. So we have to grow the membership, number one. So if anyone listening, you know, if, if you want to reach out to your MP and encourage them to join the caucus, you're, you're welcome to do so. And encourage them to be in touch with me or, or Don Davies or Scott. But the focus based on our conversations has really been rectifying the injustice of cannabis criminalization. And so revisiting that question of pardon process expungement, ensuring that people are not prohibited from participating in the legal marketplace. Uh, we've seen other jurisdictions, Oakland is, a, is an example, that have actually tried to facilitate access into the legal marketplace for those that criminalization disproportionately punished. And we haven't seen any of those efforts, I, I think, from a from an equity perspective, despite the, you know, in other contexts, the language that the government uses. And so I think that's an important element of, of fairness and, and rectifying the injustice. Second piece is just making sure that the market is functioning in a sensible way. And so we have to reform some rules. It makes no sense that I can only buy five cans of low potent potency in terms of beverage, but I can buy, you know, almost an unlimited amount of powder. Like it, we have to get our heads around the difference between potency and weight, which Health Canada clearly in designing the rules didn't have anyone in the room who consumed these substances. <laughs> uh, but uh, so there's that. And then the, the last piece is around patient access, I think, just ensuring that we are also not only focused on the consumer marketplace, but we're also ensuring that there's proper patient access. And I've, I've already canvassed some of my thoughts there, but uh, I'm, I'm largely thinking about the excise tax and making sure tax reform alleviates the burden on, on people who need this for, for medicinal reasons. Um, so you, your, your government your, was, uh, was the forward thinking government to bring in the Cannabis Act into the country. And first first in the G20 nations to do so, uh, second after Uruguay to legalize. And there's this three-year review coming up to be able to uh, take a look back at the last three years, see what's working, what's not working. You're, you're describing some of the things that, that need reform, which is great. Um, I think from your perspective, uh, is the Cannabis Act as a criminal statute, the way it stands, uh, the way the way that I see it as a uh, kind of a rebranding of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in terms of its penalties and uh, the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act kind of put in there for promotion and packaging uh, offenses. This the, the, the act that we have now, the, this Cannabis Act, is is this the way that you saw cannabis being legalized? And if not, is was there a different way? to approach the actual piece of legislation. It's funny you say you said three year review and I previously said five year and it just goes to show how 
normalized the legalization of cannabis is in my mind that I thought it was yes. much longer ago that yes. we did it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, was, I was asked by a CBC report. It was funny. Only Wayne Easter and I, he's now retired, but we were the only two liberals to acknowledge having used cannabis. And, wow. uh, and, and this is in the wake of legalization. And so, you know, on the day of legalization or, or, or close to it, I don't often get scrummed, but reporters run up to me and they say, Oh, you know, uh, do you will you, will you use cannabis now? And and I said, well, yes, I, you know, I will continue to use cannabis, and uh, I don't think it's any different from you know someone enjoying a glass of wine on a Friday night, and I'll use my vaporizer, and I don't think anyone's going to ask me this question in five years, but I, I think it's even a shorter window than that. People don't, people just don't care anymore. People, this is the most normal thing. And it's, and it's almost like it was never criminal in some respects, despite the fact that, you know, if, if we fix the record problem, it, it might be even more, uh, that might even be more of a reality for, for those who have been affected previously. The, in terms of the way the, the rules were designed, I don't have, without going into all the details, I mean, I would say broadly, it is much more punitive as a regime than I would have drafted it. It is, I think unnecessarily punitive, but my my view of things, this was the government wanting to legalize cannabis through uh, now Minister Blair, but through a law and order approach that we were actually going to get. This was about tackling organized crime, and this was about making sure it was tougher for kids to get access to cannabis, and it. It departed from one of the core purposes for me, and I articulate this every chance I got. You know, will it? Will cannabis legalization undermine the black market? Yes, unquestionably it will. It will. It will do so even more if we get the marketplace right, and and we don't make it harder for people to participate in that marketplace. Will it make it harder for young people to get access to cannabis? I mean, maybe, but I, I'm skeptical that. I mean young people have always found a way to get access to alcohol. I, I don't see a huge shift there. So, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, will it treat Canadians as the responsible adults they are? I think yes. And I think that's that's got to be one of the core purposes that we, we never articulated as a government, but I articulate it all the time. And so I think the cannabis legislation over, overall landed in a way that allowed a marketplace to start up, allowed Canadians to be treated as responsible adults. You can now go on OCS or you can stop by the far too many cannabis retail locations and and pick up a, a range of different products that I, that I think is really important and good. Is it excessively punitive if you depart from the regime? Yes. And, and I, I think the model there should have been alcohol. And I, and I don't know know we we walked into that process obviously taking a much stronger law and order view as a government than i would have taken as an individual the, the last thing i'll say is i i my my battle at the time was less around we, we were moving in that direction and i didn't see a huge shift away from it the the legislation mirrored the task force recommendations quite closely the one the one place where there was a fight and a policy fight because some of my caucus colleagues were concerned about the politics of allowing home grow. And I basically said, allow home grow or I'm going to vote against the legislation. Because <laughs> uh, I just thought it was from a, from a basic 
accessibility purpose, although my own growing attempts have, have not always been the most fruitful, but I just think from a, from a fairness perspective, from an accessibility perspective, from a treating Canadians as responsible adults, you can brew at home, you should be able to grow at home. I, I just thought it was obvious that we should allow home grow and, and we did thankfully. So uh, that was a winning battle in the end, but you know, overall, I think we'll improve the legislation as we go. I don't know that we're going to entirely depart from the harsher and more punitive sanctions than you or I would have drafted from the get-go. What advice would you give other nations, like, for example, the U.S. or other countries like Mexico that are on the verge of legalizing in terms of... uh, their own cannabis acts. Would you suggest the broader approach right away of decriminalizing, legalizing all drugs and regulating right away? Would you go in a step-by-step path with cannabis and then perhaps the psychedelics and, you know, the opioids? And I mean, what, what would you tell, what are, what could you tell uh, other countries? I think the politics in Canada are not so dissimilar from other countries in relation to decriminalization more broadly. We, we see some jurisdictions decriminalize more broadly, and but we, we, we don't really see, we, we have safe supply efforts in Canada, but we don't see many other jurisdictions take a broader, strict regulatory point of view with currently illegal substances. And so I think the approach is very much, there's an opportunity to legalize and regulate cannabis. There's a proven approach. It's a public health focused approach that is about ensuring that there's proper education, making sure that there are strict controls around the production and and the quality of the cannabis and the safety of it and strict controls around potency. And that's all important. And then I do think, you know, people in the industry and and I will differ on this, but I, I do think a public health approach, it's important to have restrictions on commercial advertising. Uh, I think we should have you know, people will point to alcohol and say, well, you know, it's not fair. And I will say, I agree, but the answer isn't necessarily to liberalize on the one hand, it's probably to restrict on the other hand, frankly, if, if one takes a, a, you know, a principle, principally public health, uh, order approach for other countries, I would also say you're not going to see a legal marketplace for psychedelics in most countries tomorrow, but I would say decriminalizing the possession of these substances is very doable. And in Canada, it's been very politically <laughs> difficult to do. Um, and it's purely political, right? Like w- there, all the evidence is there. This is just, will you know, and, and, and fairly conservatives go to town on us. They, you know, when I have introduced legislation on this, there have been press releases from conservatives to say, liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine Smith wants drugs more accessible. And that's not what this is about. This is about making sure that we're helping people and we're ensuring that there is no stigma associated with seeking treatment. And this is about ensuring that we're not using the criminal law to address what is fundamentally problematic substance use is fundamentally a health issue. And, and where people can consume substances responsibly, criminal law has no place and where they have difficulty with addictions or, or mental health issues or substance use issues that turn problematic, then it's, it's gotta be a health response and mandatory treatment doesn't work. I mean, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear. It becomes a communication issue and a political issue, but increasingly I think we're winning that battle. And so to other countries, I would say definitely legalize and regulate cannabis. It's the easiest thing as far as the politics go. And 
people will tell you the sky will fall and it won't fall. And we went through that debate here in Canada and it's normalized and it's, and, and it's working. And we, do we have to improve it? Yes. But we're talking tweaks, not overhauling the system. And in relation to other drugs, I think decriminalize to take a health approach is, is the fundamental right answer. And there's a number of different arguments one can bring to bear, including saving resources and, and dollars on the judicial and law enforcement side, redirecting them to health and, and more. The evidence is also on our side there too. It's a more challenging conversation in many respects than cannabis, but it, it also, in my view, is easier in some ways because cannabis was about treating Canadians as responsible adults. Decriminalization is, is about saving lives in many in, in many respects, where we want to destigmatize people who use drugs and, and help them get the get you know expand treatment options. So I, I, it's it's I don't I I'm loath to suggest that's advice for other countries when the government of the day has yet to take my advice. But I, I but I think the advice is the same for Canada and the same for other countries. And is that uh, uh, the the focus of Bill C-22 you mentioned at the beginning, what what was the Bill C-22 and, and what how will it be reintroduced? Yeah, um, so C-22 was my attempt at pragmatism. It was not a simple deletion of Section 4 of the CDSA, which if you wanted to decriminalize, that would be the route. And you would say to provinces, if you want to intervene with a health response, you're open to develop your health response. We're going to support you with funding. And in this platform, in this past election campaign, we've put additional dollars, $500 million, I think, on the table to expand treatment options and evidence-based options, not abstinence-based options. And we're, I think, going to be firmer with provinces about how federal dollars are spent, and that's all good. The government, though, has been very clear with me in the past. I, I pushed a caucus policy resolution through our liberal convention in 2018 to call for decriminalization. I have introduced legislation on this front. And the the simple deletion of Section 4 was not something the government indicated they'd support to me. So I turned my mind to how can I get to where I want to get in a way that the government will support these efforts. And I worked with third-party advocacy organizations and hammered out a solution which functionally, it fetters the discretion of police and prosecutors through evidence-based principles. So treating problematic substance use as a health issue, ensuring that a human rights approach is taken, recognizing the ineffectiveness of uh, and the inappropriateness of of the judicial sanction in, in respect of possession offenses. And there's a series of, of evidence-based health principles. And my read of it and the read from experts in the Justice Department is that this would make it, if passed, it would make it virtually impossible for a prosecution to successfully proceed because you it's it fetters the discretion not only of pre police, but it, even more so of prosecutors such that they can't proceed by way of a prosecution for simple possession if a warning or an alternative measure would be sufficient in keeping with the evidence-based principles. And there's this, I, I can't imagine a simple possession charge that, where a warning would be insufficient in keeping with the evidence-based principles or where some alternative measure would be insufficient. So I think we've already seen a drop in prosecutions of possession offenses in a marked way over the last five years. And I think this would, that would, this would really, it's almost like it is codifying the practice in Vancouver in some ways where 
police don't really lay charges in a way that police in other jurisdictions do. And this would ensure that police and prosecutors don't. Now, the, the trick becomes the training of police officers. And it's great the police chiefs are on board, but it's really about making sure that every police officer in the system understands what their role now is. And it, and it ensures you know training for prosecutors. We now have guidelines for prosecutors that mirror this as well. So we're, we're getting there, but it's it's not decriminalization in a formal way, it's it's as close as we're going to get in a de facto way. And that, that was my attempt, knowing the politics of the situation and knowing I wasn't going to get exactly what I wanted. So great that the government's adopted it. Great that the government's going to retable it within the first 100 days and we're going to see it through. Now, my, now I'm turning my mind to, can I improve that legislation? Can I make it even more forceful in any way? And the one thought I have right now is I want to get an amendment in there that will right now through section 56 of the CDSA, the minister can grant an exemption to the CDSA upon request. And what I want is when a city or a province applies for an exemption, I want it to be uh, an automatic grant. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to fetter mm-hmm. the discretion of the minister through the legislation to make it an automatic granting of an exemption upon request, uh, provided it meets certain criteria potentially. But cause right now, Vancouver's put a request in and Health Canada and Vancouver going back and forth on it. BC says they're going to put a request in. Toronto's now having the conversation. But I, I want to make sure this process is as easy as possible and it makes it as easy as possible for cities and provinces to opt out. Uh, that's that's on my mind at the moment. And hopefully we get to a place where at some point the federal government can just completely delete it and everyone shrugs their shoulders and said, oh yeah, you should have done that a long time ago. I wish you the best of luck with it. It sounds like you're on the right track. Um, last question before I let you go. Uh, when you were in law school, did you imagine that you'd become a parliamentarian? Did you? How? What was your process for uh, your journey of going from, you know, a student? interested in many different issues in, in, in law school too. I got to run. I'm going to, I'm going to help change this country. <laughs> what, what, what was that process like for you? You know, it's funny. I, I ran for city council when I was an undergrad in Kingston and I lost miserably. I, I knew nothing about campaigning. I, I'd argue I won the debate. I was endorsed by the local paper and then I got like 300 votes <laughs> and, and you know I lost miserably. I didn't spend very much money either, but I, but I really knew nothing about campaigning. And then it was one of those experiences where I said, I'm never doing this again. This was, a, I, I just, I, I was so utterly defeated. I'm never doing this again. And I went off to law school and I had it in my mind. I didn't know what I was going to do, be a lawyer, translate the law degree into business, or increasingly as I enjoyed law school, I thought about becoming a judge down the road uh, because I, I did appreciate, you know, I, I quite liked law school uh, for probably for the first time in my long <laughs> educational career i i really enjoyed the material and and the the you know the combination of philosophy and the application of that philosophy to real life circumstances and then i went off and i articled and it was a great place where i articled and i enjoyed it but i i went back to school for a year and i did my master of laws and i studied constitutional law and political philosophy and i it was in that year that I really was turning my mind to 
public advocacy and public interest advocacy and how I could better make a difference. And a friend of mine at the time, he's subsequently been my campaign manager and he works for me, but he was the riding association president for a liberal riding association in Niagara. And I was helping him with some partisan things on and off uh, remotely from the UK, helping to write articles and, and things. And we, we, it was something we talked about. And, and when I got back, uh, you know, I, I'd moved away from thinking that being a judge is the way that I could make the biggest difference from a public interest point of view in law to thinking, you know, there's this huge disconnect between how we think about elected representatives in the legislature that in my classes and in my reading and writing, it was very much, there is this noble profession. You are a trustee in the public interest and it's a place for thoughtful debate and where much can be done, uh, you know, in, in pursuit of the greater good. And, and then there was how people actually thought of politicians. And <laughs> right. so uh, when Trudeau came along and called for generational change in the party, when he called for open nominations and grassroots democracy, it really appealed to me. And it just so happened that where I grew up in Beaches East York here in the East End of Toronto, that there was a retiring liberal incumbent. There was an open, completely open nomination. And I thought, what's the worst thing that can happen? So my friend and I started running in that nomination, taking some of the lessons we learned from utterly failing in city council <laughs> many years before. And, uh, and after it was a tough, it was 13 months of working as a lawyer by day and making countless phone calls and knocking on doors in the evenings and on weekends. And, signing people up one by one. And we signed up hundreds of new members to the Liberal Party. And then there was a little mini election in the cafeteria of a local high school, December 14th, 2014. And we came out on top. So it's, uh, yeah, and the rest is history. Fantastic. Nate, it's uh, been such a pleasure. Thank you for for sharing your your thoughts and, and uh, experiences with me. And uh, I hope we'll, we'll have another chance, uh, perhaps after bill the next version of bill c22 becomes law yeah well and i hope also in this job I, you know i'm expert in nothing but i am a decent advocate at times and so I, I will definitely be in touch with you and with others just around the three-year review and how we can be effective in making sure that our approach which i think is world leading in many ways but continues to improve so that other countries, when they when the politics do allow and when they are ready and when they have leadership domestically on this issue and they're ready to follow the evidence, that we continue to not only have been one of the first countries to have done it, but we have the best evidence-informed approach for them to follow. So that's uh, that's that work will require everyone leaning in who knows far more than I do, and you're, that includes you. So I'll be in touch, and I appreciate you asking me to, to join. Excellent. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Law in Canada. As you may guess, this interview is not legal advice. And if you need legal advice, please contact a lawyer. We're always working on making this the best podcast for our listeners. So if you have suggestions for an interview or ideas for episodes, please contact us at CannabisLaw.ca.